Let's pray one more time. Lord, I just, again, thank you for worship. We pray for the filling of your spirit in this room. We ask, God, that you would teach today, that you would be here, and that your word would go forth in truth and in power, and you would give us all that we have. We long for you, and we thank you for the rain. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm reading out the ESV version today, so I will start with verse 1. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you would do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Okay, so we have a dramatic shift in chapters 4 and 5. Paul is shifting his focus from his personal pleasantries and his latest missionary endeavors in chapters 1 through 3. That's what, we, that's what Paul just did. Now through 4 and 5, we're going into real practical instruction. And Paul begins by appealing to the conscience of the Thessalonians by saying, we ask and we urge you. So who is the we mentioned there? It's Paul, Silas, and it's Timothy. And this is evidenced in chapter 1, verse 1, and throughout the letter. Next, Paul's appeal is predicated upon the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember verse 1, we ask and urge you in whom? The Lord Jesus. And once again in verse 2, it says, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of whom? The Lord Jesus. And that was taken from the NIV. So what is Paul's request? It's that the Thessalonians would continue on in how they ought to walk. And that's to say how they ought to walk out, work out, and live out their spiritual lives in a daily manner. They're exhorted to do so more and more, which is a theme in this chapter as well. But what captures my attention most about these verses is not the admonition to continue walking out my Christian life more fully. But it's the desire to please God that predominantly stands out. Somebody once said, everyone lives to please somebody. Himself, his spouse, his parents, his child, his God, or someone else. Now Paul crystallizes the motivation for correct living as love for God. And that happens to be point number one on your study guide. The motivation for correct living is love for God. Right conduct is best born out of a genuine appreciation, an alignment with, and an acknowledgement of the person of Jesus. So when we examine scripture, we find a few verses that shed light on what pleases God. Most notably, Hebrews eleven six: for without faith is it impossible to please God. Hebrews thirteen sixteen: and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. And finally, Colossians 1.10, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So biblically, we discover that faith, good works, fruitfulness, sharing, and walking worthy of the Lord are among the areas that please him. Not all, but among, okay? So these are, the mo- these are mostly, though, outward workings, but they should be born from an inward love for the Lord, Pleasing God springs best, not from duty, not from fear, but from a place of authentic affection and desire for him. We see this heart exemplified. I've shared this this verse with you gals a few times, but it's one of my faves. It's Psalm 73, 25, and it says, Whom have I in heaven but you? 
and earth has nothing I desire besides you. Now that is a sold out heart for the Lord. Amen. Additionally, we're given another clue about pleasing God found in Romans 12 too. We are told that his will is good, pleasing, and perfect. So what's his will then? Well, it just so happens that we've got some of that spelled out in our text today. Let's pick up in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Broadly stated, God's will is for our sanctification. Therefore, it is with certainty that sanctification pleases him. Though Paul lays out the call for sanctification by way of sexual abstention from, from abstention from sexual immorality, we must not lose sight of the overall picture. I like the way one commentary captured this point nicely. He said, many people regard the Christian life as a set of rules to be obeyed or a list of prohibitions to avoid. But Paul regarded it as the outworking of a loving desire to please God who had chosen him. We want the actions of pleasing God and lovingly responding to him to color and to permeate all that we're studying here today. And even though Paul dives deeper specifically on the subject of sexual immorality, I want us to catch first the greater concepts of sanctification and holiness. Why? Because when we understand these larger topics, we can switch out sexual immorality for any sin that so easily entangles us. We can use this understanding to our spiritual benefit toward cultivating a biblical response to whatever variety of sin we may face. We can practice pleasing the Lord all the way through that. So let's talk about sanctification for a moment. In simple terms, sanctification means to be made holy. And now the Christian experiences several types of sanctification, the first being at conversion. So when a person or a woman or a man places faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, he or she immediately receives right standing before God because of the shed blood of Christ. We call this atonement. We call this justification. We call this imputed righteousness. And Paul explains this process in Colossians 1, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. But now he, referring to God, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. In this setting, we are made holy instantly, and we are fully sanctified forever based solely upon the merit of Christ's sacrifice. It's by faith, right? Not by works. Now, the second type of sanctification is what I'm calling progressive sanctification. And this is what I believe that Paul is referring to in our passage today. Um, Now, progressive sanctification, a good definition, a short definition would be, it's the process of godly maturation over our lifetime, right? And the goal here is ever increasing conformity to the image of Christ's character by the indwelling of and the yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer. Now, the result of the Spirit's work and our cooperation with him is right living. In short, we call this righteousness. It's the external proof of his internal activity. We call this fruit. We call this the fruit of the Spirit. 
Now remember earlier from Colossians 1.10 that walking worthy and being fruitful glorifies and pleases God. It is for his good pleasure that we walk in good works. Now we see this dynamic between God and us laid out in Philippians 2.13. For it is God who works where, ladies? In you. Both to will and to do for what, ladies? His good pleasure, yes. So progressive sanctification is this joint venture between God and us. Okay, let's move forward, picking up in verse 3 for context. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warn you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So what's going on here? What's going on with the believers in Thessalonica? Well, in short, it's life, right? It's that battle between the flesh and the spirit. And personally, I'm kind of excited that Paul's having a little chit-chat with them because for me, it's comforting to know that they didn't have it all together either. They struggled, they battled, and they needed help too. In fact, we see Paul's heart to spur on their sanctification earlier back in chapter 310 where he says, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. So Paul prays for them. He longs to fellowship with them and he supplies what is lacking in their faith. How? By speaking truth for their edification and admonishment. He challenges them to move forward to the next stage of their, physic, their spiritual development. Now, specifically speaking, Paul tackles the sin of sexual immorality. And just like the culture in Greece, sexual looseness is unashamedly promoted here, too. Volumes could be stated on the pursuit of sexual purity and, and self-control for the Christian believer. Now, though there are numerous passages that we could turn to for examination, we'll be taking a slightly different approach today. Why so different, you ask? Because that's what the Holy Spirit put on my heart one day in my quiet time. So we're going to be drawing primarily from uh, Psalm 91. And if you allow me, I would like to examine part of this psalm for its applicational purposes in fighting off sexual temptation. Grab some water. I will be reading Psalm 91.1 which states, He who dwells in the shelter or the secret place of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. So in fighting sexual temptation, the best place to be is close to the Lord. The Hebrew word to dwell there means exactly what we expect it to mean, to remain, to sit, to abide. But allow me to make a distinction here with another verse one chapter earlier. In Psalm 90, not 91, but in Psalm 90, verse 1, Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And it's those words, have been, that grab my attention. You see, they speak of continuance, habit, regular occurrence. And when it comes to combating sexual temptation, the woman who routinely engages with the Lord stands a far better chance for victory than the one who seldomly comes to him. Well, why? 
Because the first one is loved more than the second? No. It's because her devotion allows her to draw close to the Lord where she can find help in time of need. Now, naturally, we see this play out on our lives, too. Like, so don't we feel more comfortable asking for help from someone that we're in regular contact with than from someone, you know, we rarely see? And why is that? It's because we've already established that familiarity. That relationship has already been built with that person close by. It's like Proverbs 27.10, better neighbor nearby than a brother far away. Now, with God, we have accessibility to him at all times. Praise the Lord. But point number two. Maintaining a vital walk with God helps us maintain a clean walk with God. Maintaining a vital walk helps us maintain a clean walk. Now, returning back to Psalm 91.1, what promise is made to the one who dwells? Well, again, the verse reads, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Point number three, if we dwell in the Lord then we will rest in the Lord. If we dwell, we will rest. And where are we told to rest from that verse, ladies? In the shadow of the Almighty, the El Shaddai, the most powerful one. Now that Hebrew word for shadow means shade, and that makes sense. But did you know that that word shadow also means defense? Hmm. So point number four. When we rest in his shadow, we rest in his protection. When we rest in his shadow, we rest in his protection. Let's watch him illustrate this protection in Psalm 91.4. He will cover you with his wings, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. Now, when we are covered by his protection and we're tucked under the refuge of his wings, we experience his faithfulness, which he declared would be our shield and our rampart. Now, the shield and the rampart, they depict defensive imagery here. And when we use a shield, we're trying to block something from penetrating. And a rampart is a protective barrier. Which brings me to my first visual aid. Now, the gals in my group asked me last week, because I've had them praying for me, they asked me if I was going to bring any visual aids, visual aids, and I was like, no, I just got pictures. So I didn't want to disappoint them, so I brought my first one, and I'll show it to you, and I'll put a picture. I don't know if you can see what this is, but I will have the sound ministry play my first photo and kind of enlarge the same idea. What is that, ladies? Sunscreen, right? We got sunscreen. So why am I showing you sunscreen? Well, it is because sunscreen blocks out the sun and it creates a barrier against the ultraviolet radiation that can, we can get you know, to our bodies. So I want to make the comparison, if you allow me, that God is like spiritual sunscreen. Yeah, let me, I'll explain it. So When God sets a boundary around sexual purity, he does so because he wants to block our exposure to sin. And he wants to place a barrier between us and its harmful outcomes. Now, let's take a little look at this next guy. He was a video, but in the video, he's going like this, right? So this guy, obviously you guys are not a, a hairy dude, but... He has his sunblock on, and he's ready, right? He, he may not look the best, but he's protected, amen? 
Okay. Sorry you couldn't see the full effect. It was funny when he, when he was moving. Anyway, so another way that God expresses his faithfulness and protection is providing a way of escape from those temptations. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when, not if, you are tempted, he will also tell you to stay put. Now look at me funny and tell me that's not how the scripture goes, right? Does he tell us to stay put? No. What is he telling us to do? It says that he will also provide a way out so you can stand up under it. So his provision is that you get out right? His provision is a good exit strategy. Sometimes we just need to run out. We're told in 2 Timothy 2.22 to flee youthful, youthful lusts. So there's been times where I'm watching a movie and I'm just like, I, now I have to leave because I just, I'm not going to do that. And I'm, I'm out, you know, or you have to turn the channel. I, I didn't, you know, you just, I'm done, you know, or you avoid a website or a magazine. But what about other things like Needing to resist the temptation to compare another man's love for his wife to your husband or to your marriage. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled, ladies. Subtle temptations and emotional entrapments can, just be, can be just as deadly. Amen? The battle for purity always begins here, right? Always is, begins in the heart. So this brings us to my second, second visual. I don't know if it will work, but we'll see. Now, you know, how many of you, did anybody bring an umbrella today? Yes, street cred. <laughs> now, that wasn't a part, but I think that's the Lord. I brought mine. I borrowed my husband's. Now, I want to ask, do, do you guys, when you, you, you ladies, when you use your umbrella, do you hold it like this? Do you hold it like this? Now, how about this? No, where do you put your umbrella? Right above, right? Maybe my angle is a touch, but I didn't want to get my hair. I did my hair today for you ladies. I don't want to get my hair wet, so I made sure I brought my coat and an umbrella to double up on that. So anyways, you have a, you you know, you use your umbrella. So God's shade is like an umbrella, shielding and blocking on our behalf. Okay, good. I was able to close it. I'm not technical. I'm not. I'm just going to leave it like that. (laughs) Cut my losses. Okay. So here's the thing. When we stay under that umbrella of purity, we avoid the raindrops of sexual immorality. Amen? Now let's take this umbrella example and let's tweak it a little bit. How many of you have had broken umbrellas? Yeah. Like most of us, right? The fabric gets torn those little support rods get broken and crooked, and they're useless. They're pretty much useless. In fact, I'm going to have the sound ministry bring up my, my jacked-up umbrella. She's not having a good day, right? I mean, you can see it. I mean, I don't even, like, these little parts are all bent and twisted, and, you know, what good is that, right? What good is that? So the more compromised the umbrella, the less protection it offers the users. The user, Right? Greater degrees of sexual compromise produce greater degrees of crookedness and deformity in our lives. We want the straight path, amen? We want the straight path. But dwelling in his shade, his protection, his faithfulness, which is really, in a nutshell, it's dwelling in the presence of God. 
These are wonderful defensive strategies, right? The shield, the rampart, these are defensive, and they can be used to combat sexual temptations. However, there's another type of dwelling that we can deploy offensively to aid us on our march towards victory and sexual purity. Because after all, in verse 4 of our text, Paul exhorts us to know how to control our own bodies in holiness and honor, well, sign me up, coach. That's what I want. How does that work? Okay? Because a good coach is going to have both an offensive and a defensive plan for success. He's not going to ignore, at least he shouldn't, one team in favor of the other. And neither should we neglect one part of the battle at the expense of the war waged against us. Now, if being still... And dwelling in his presence yields rest and protection, right? That that defensive strategy. Then point number five, then dwelling in the word of God strengthens us for the fight. Dwelling in the word of God strengthens us for the fight. This is our offensive plan. As we abide in the truth of God's word, we are washed and we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Some of you ladies remember the coffee pot illustration, right? Maybe. But doing so yields direct results. Psalm 119 verse 11 says, I have hidden what? Your word in my heart. Why? That I may not sin against you. And Psalm 119 verse 9 How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to what? The word, your word. God, give us a heart to love your word. When we draw upon his truth, we are strengthened to walk out our lives in righteousness and holiness. The belt of truth, right, which is the word of God, reveals his will. Now, the breastplate of righteousness, which is Christ's covering over us, is also, ladies, is also, it's a demonstration of that truth expressed outwardly in, in, in upright living. Point number six. This is a long one. It's got your most fill in the blanks. So I'm going to take it slow. Truth, truth is knowing and affirming God's standard. Truth is knowing and affirming God's standard. While righteousness aligns our behavior with his standard. Righteousness aligns our behavior with his standard. That is not my wisdom. That is from Priscilla Shire. A belt holds up our pants the same way the word of God holds us up and wraps around our spirit. It's our fundamental support. It's our stabilizer. And the, the breastplate, what does the breastplate do? It protects the most important, the most vital organ you have. It's your heart. And it does so the same way that righteousness protects your way. You see, we guard our hearts as evidenced by righteous living Because we know that from it flow the issues of life. Amen? So in short, we know that we can be strengthened to live for him when we dwell in his word because he continually transforms and he renews our minds according to the belt of truth, the Bible. Yes, ladies? 
Now, in addition to dwelling in the word, how else can we practically be strengthened to live out that holy, self-controlled life that Paul admonishes us to here in our text? Well, that brings us to point number seven. We are also strengthened offensively to execute righteousness by the power of the indwelling spirit of God. We are strengthened offensively to execute righteousness by the power of the indwelling spirit of God. Listen to Paul's prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, I pray that of his glorious riches, speaking of Jesus, he may strengthen, there's that word, you with what power? Through his spirit. Where? In your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I hope you walk away knowing that you're not ever, you were never meant to do it on your own. This Christian life cannot be done apart from the Spirit of God. You're just going to run into legalism all day, every day, and you want your miles to run into a wall. You're given the Spirit of God for a reason, ladies. For a reason. We can't do this on our own. What I'm saying is not sustainable on its own. Maybe you're good for five minutes, and then you're terrible the rest of the day. You should sit me with my kids. I'm being honest. Paul ties the ability to live righteously with the Spirit in our text too. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. What a gift. What a gift. When we came to faith in Christ, his Spirit took up residence to empower us to do what we couldn't do on our own. Amen? Galatians 5, 16. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful sinful nature. See, we have tested proof positive for the activity of the Holy Spirit, which gives us believers distinction over unbelievers. Point number eight, your last point. The indwelling of the Spirit is what marks and separates the Christian woman's battle for purity from the worldly woman's. His spirit marks and separates you for the battle of purity. You are different. You are different. Child of God, you are more than a conqueror. How so? Because you've been given access to supernatural power by the spirit that the natural man does not possess. The ability to resist temptation, experience forgiveness, newness, transformation. These are all a testimony of God's grace working in you and me. A holy, changed life demonstrates the reality of Christ to unbelievers. And for the believer, putting it simplistically, sexual purity is really a practical application of basic doctrine. We can flip-flop sexual immorality for any sin we like, but the command to be holy as I am holy remains the same. And again, Paul pinpoints this in verse 7. For God has not called us to impurity, but what? Holiness. He calls us in holiness. Christ's commands are his enablements if. Now, that's a big if, right? That's where the battle is. If we're willing to be yielded to the work of the Spirit in our lives. I wish I had more time to talk to you about it. 
But the command to be pure is a chance, ladies, to respond lovingly to him. When we offer our bodies in purity, we please him. Romans 12.1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and what? Pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship, your reasonable act of service. Uh, service. And that brings us full circle, pleasing him. Now, if you're anything like me, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, perhaps you've blown it in the area of sexual purity. I have. And if so, I'm willing to wager that it's probably been at least your one-off, if not your top, worst, biggest area of personal regret. It is for me. So with that in mind, let's draw some comfort from these verses. This is 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, a.k.a. girl, dwell in the word. Be self-controlled. Get in step with the spirit, girl. But set your hope on what? Fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance or for some of us in flat-out rebellion or some mix in between. But just as he had called you as holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy as I am holy. If you are currently walking in compromise, then come out and be separate. Receive the grace of God and the forgiveness he offers. Just this morning I read it. He is a forgiving God to Israel. I love that. Receive the redemption he extends and the restoration he will bring. When we make that choice to stand for the Lord, you can bet your bottom dollar that he's going to bless you tomorrow. Right? Joshua 3, 5, sanctify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. He will bless your obedience and he will bring restoration. He will restore the years the locusts have eaten. Amen. Now, if you've already walked down that road of forgiveness, but maybe you're wavering a little bit, or you just kind of feel stuck in regret, then I understand how you feel. Recently, I was driving by myself, which is a rare thing, but I don't know what prompted it. But next thing I know, I catch myself out loud apologizing to him yet again for my mistakes of yesteryear. And that action got me thinking, why do I do that? Why do I tell him I'm sorry again? You see, it's not that I don't believe I'm forgiven. It's just that sometimes I forget. I forget. And so I'm going to have sound bring up the next quote. A redeemed woman need not be ashamed of a forgiven past. A forgiven past. So I remind myself to not forget all his benefits. I remind myself that he took away that sin and all of the rest, that I remind myself that I'm a new creation in Christ and that I am who he says I am. And he says that I'm forgiven. He says that I'm loved, I'm clean, I'm accepted, I'm chosen. And he says I'm free, free from the sin and free from the guilt. Believe the truth of his word over your doubts. Now, if any of you guys want to chit-chat about this area, I'm open. If you want to chit-chat afterwards about anything, I'm open. I'm going to hang out because I love you, because I want to be there, and because I've been praying 
the heck out of you for you. I don't know if I can say that. I might get in trouble for saying heck. I do in my own house. Don't tell my boys. So, but I'm here about anything. I'll be hanging out. So, anyways, now I'm going to summarize um, in our text in verses 9 through 12, Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to continue in brotherly love. We've had some great teachings on that. But he also tells them to lead a quiet life. In the remaining verses of chapter 4, Paul speaks on the coming of the Lord. So we're going to transition now to a new topic. But I remember, I'm going to tell myself, I remembered when I received the teaching calendar in December. And I said to myself, I just hope I don't get the section on the end times. And I was like, I just hope I don't have that. And so I prayed this quick, like, spiritual prayer, like, whatever you want, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do whatever you have. And I lay it all before you, and you know what you're doing, and I trust what you've got going on. So I'm not good with addresses. Like, I don't, like, I think I only know, like, John 3, 16. I'm not good with Bible addresses. So I don't know what chapter 4 is about, like, not off my head, you know. So I go and look it up, and I literally start going like this. No, 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 no. And I have this like huge laughter and this huge, like this can't be true. That's what I didn't want to teach. I don't know. And so this is literally what went in my mind. I'm going to show you a picture illustrating what I want to do with this text. I want to kick the can. Yes, I wanted to kick that puppy. And then I have one more, which again, you're not going to get the full effect because I, I couldn't do a video. But this is a soccer guy. It's hilarious. He punts the ball. And that is what I wanted to do. That's what I thought. I was like, well, maybe, maybe I can just kick the can on this stuff and I'll, I'll just focus on like the sexual immorality stuff. And so that was my heart. That was my heart. But seriously, though, the more that I got into it, the more jazzed I got about teaching it. In fact, maybe I'll just kick the can, the sexual morality stuff in favor of the rapture stuff and just totally switched. But the Lord was like, no, we've got different plans. So... With the limited amount of time that we have remaining, we're going to take kind of a high-level view of the rest of the chapter. So let's pick up in verse 13 and get down to some business, go and get in the nitty-gritty some more. But we do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep." Well, ladies, we have more than belief. We have more than belief that Jesus died on a cross and rose again. Ladies, we have historical facts. I can't get all into it, but I'm going to summarize. When you consider the empty grave, the numerous eyewitness accounts, fulfilled prophecy. Did you know the Bible's 26% was fulfilled prophecy? 26%. Historical documents and many other proofs. When you put those things together, you can rest securely in the veracity of the resurrection and that your faith is not in vain. It is well founded. I'm going to take a drink of water. Now, I'm going to share a quote with you, and many of you have heard it, but it's just applicable, so we'll say it again anyways. There is more legal historic evidence the kind that's used in courtrooms for the resurrection, than there is for the Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo, which occurred 1,800 years later. That's how much information, more information there is certifying, verifying that the resurrection actually took place. Continuing on in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord 
again, the, based on the authority, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the clarifying point on those who have fallen asleep, what does that mean? Falling asleep was New Testament vernacular that meant a believer in Jesus had physically died. And when a person dies, saved or unsaved, his body remains on earth. Whatever form that is, it's bought, his body stays here. Psalm 90 verse 3, you turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. But the soul of the church age Christian, now who is that? Those are the peeps, those are the believers from the Pentecost all the way through the rapture. So when I'm talking about this subject right here, there's a fascinating thing on the Old Testament saints and then the raptured or the um, tribulation saints. These are different. So for our context and our time, we're just going to be talking about those believers from Pentecost to the rapture. But their soul goes directly to be with the Lord when they die. Most famously, Paul confirms this in his second letter to the Corinthians. He states, to be absent where? From where, ladies? From the body. It's to be present where? With the Lord. So this is why the idea, if you ever heard it, of soul sleep is unbiblical. It has its roots in Jehovah's Witness, and I think that's the Seventh-day Adventists. But the reason why that philosophy is, 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 is unbiblical is because the soul of a believer does not sleep. And nor does it go into a state of unconsciousness while he or she waits for the future resurrection of his body. So it doesn't sleep, and neither does his soul linger. It doesn't wander the earth, okay? It's not doing any of that, and neither does it reincarnate itself. It doesn't go into a different body. His soul or her soul is with the Lord, as Paul mentioned, Let's return to verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, as my boys would say, this is where it gets juicy. But I'm going to break, try to attempt to break this down simplistically for my own sake, because I'll be honest with you, eschatology is not my strong suit. There's a reason why I wanted to kick the can. But church-age believers who have died or have fallen asleep are called the dead in Christ. And according to our text, they will have their bodies, not their souls. Remember, their souls are with the Lord, but their bodies resurrect first. Then... And immediately following, those believers who are still presently alive, the living saints, will join with them uh, to meet the Lord in the air. So I want to make a distinction because it gets a little bit confusing here. So whether you're, again, just the new age believers here, whether dead or alive at the rapture, the believer's body will be transformed, okay? Because it's too corruptible to enter heaven and we'd get kicked out. So the soul is with the Lord. Like if I died right now, my soul is going to the Lord, right? But my body is jiggedy jacked up and God would kick me out. He's like, you're full of sin. You can't come in. So he, when he comes down at the event we call the rapture, that's when he's going to glorify the body at the same time. Um, They meet where? In the air, not in heaven, but in the air. Because again, we'd get kicked out. So... This event 
meeting in the air is called the rapture, and it is different. I get confused on this all the time, but it is different than the second coming of Christ, where Jesus, the second coming of Christ is where Jesus comes back to earth to set up his kingdom, conquer his enemies, and, and rule in the millennial reign. And as you'll note, we don't find the word rapture in our English translation of the text. Instead, we find the phrase caught up, which you gals are so on it already, you know, comes from the Greek word harpazo, which means to seize, to snatch, or carry away. So when harpazo was translated from the Greek, because the New Testament's most Greek, when the Greek was translated into Latin, they used the word rapturo, from where we derive our English word rapture. So Greek to Latin to English. That's why we have rapture. So to be caught up or seized is the same as to be as being raptured away in the air. And if you'd like more in-depth, because again, I could only just take a snippet of end times. If you'd like a more in-depth or maybe even a chronological look at end times event, how does this look? Um, that's what the other handout I gave you is for. It's by awesome Charlie Campbell, who married my husband and I. <laughs> he has it all like laid out there in order, and it's very helpful. That thing is gold. I've had it in my Bible for over 20 years, and it's, it's awesome. So I read that thing a few times just to make sure I'm saying everything right. So, so though we've spent the last few minutes studying the bodily resurrection of the believer and the rapture, I don't want us to lose sight of an even greater reality these last verses have to offer. We're almost done. It's the why of it all. So why will God resurrect and redeem the body with the soul, right? 1 Corinthians 15 tells you a whole lot more about it. But why does he do that? And I like verse 17, just as a, a good little encouragement. Verse 17 tells us, it's so we will always be with the Lord. So we're already with the Lord, but he's going to complete that bodily transformation where he brings us from corruptible, right? That, that perishable to incorruptible and imperishable so that we can dwell with him in the fullness that he intended. I think that's just a reflection of his um, heart of redemption. He's going to make all things new. So, and isn't, and isn't that circling right back to where we were? Dwelling with him, being with the Lord. Isn't that the point? To be with the one our heart longs for. To be with the one that our hearts have aimed to please. And I think so. And I'll show you guys one more, ladies, one more picture. I just love this picture. Maybe some of you have seen it. Like, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like I just want to dance with him when I see him. I want to blow kisses. Other times I feel like I just want to weep. And I just want to be like, yes, finally, finally with the one that my heart longs for. I love that picture. You know, he's just awesome. And we'll see him how he has, as he is. And with all this glory anticipation, right, we're going to have... We can, like verse 18 states, encourage one another with these verses. Yes, indeed, we can and we will. Psalm 97, 11, Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. We are the bottle of perfume, fragranced with the scent of hope, just waiting to be poured out upon each other for encouragement and upon the lost who so desperately need him for salvation. Amen, ladies? Lord, I know that I've spoke long, and so God, I pray that you would multiply our time in groups, Lord. Ah, there's so much that was left out and so much that could be explained, but Lord, I trust you with it all, and I ask, God, that you 
would bless the ladies, give them an excitement about the hope that awaits them and, and the desire to be pure before them, Lord. Bless them in every single way. In Jesus' name, amen.